During the height of the COVID pandemic, the message, loud and clear, was to focus not just on your physical health, but your mental health too. And despite official statistics showing that nearly 9 million of you will experience a mental disorder at some point in your life, mental health uh, charities claim the system is broken, especially for people with complex needs. Rachel Green is the CEO of SANE. It's a group that lobbies and cares for people with complex needs. And Rachel's in the studio with me. Welcome. Good morning, Patricia. Yesterday you attended a forum that was brought together by the Federal Minister for Health and Aged Care, Mark Butler. He'll be on the program up to 7.30 this morning. What did you tell him about the state of mental health care across Australia at the moment? Look, one of the things that was really important for us to share were the results of a survey we conducted with our community where we heard that uh, 25% of people with complex needs had actually been turned away from services because they were told their needs were too complex. And that's a real um, indictment, I think, on mental health care when people with the greatest needs actually can't access support. Who's turning them around? Look, I think it depends on... um, on, on the region. There's a lot of regional inequity. People in regional and rural areas have much higher barriers getting access to psychological care, and that was really the focus of the forum yesterday. But there are also barriers, really significant barriers around cost, with the average co-payment now up to $90. But for in, in many places, that's on the low end of what you're actually expected to pay. And that's too high a barrier, particularly if your whole family needs support. So let's just... Uh drill down into what you mean when you say complex mental health issues, because obviously there's a spectrum. Uh, what what does a complex mental health issue look like? Yeah, sure. So when we define uh, complex at SANE, we mean people who might have uh, ongoing and persistent mental illnesses, uh, things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, borderline personality disorder, but we also mean people who might be dealing with multiple conflicting issues at once, so underlying trauma, family violence, and uh, you know severe depression and anxiety, PTSD as well as the sort of associated life factors like homelessness and disadvantage. All of that wraps up to be pretty complex and often you need more than just a, a one-pronged response. And I think that's the challenge that, that we were really trying to bring into the room yesterday. We have a system in better access that's meant to provide universal support for people with mental health issues, but it's a very blunt instrument. It's 10 sessions, regardless of what you need or where you live. And one of the things I tried to raise in the room is that there's no mechanism right now for urgency for people with really urgent needs to get in quickly. You mentioned 10 sessions. It was 20 and then it went back to the 10 sessions it was before Mm. the COVID pandemic. Do you think that's acceptable? Because that's been contentious. It's been very contentious. I don't think... I think if we if we come out of this with just a new number, I think that will be um, a failure. I spoke to uh, people from Flourish, the uh, Tas- a Tasmanian peak body for people with mental health issues that represents lived experience, and they said 20 to 10 is zero to zero for us because we can't get anything already. So I think that's the challenge. It's not a question just of numbers. It's a question of unblocking the system, looking at workforce challenges, and making sure that people can get access uh, not just to psychology and occupational therapy but to other types of support like registered counselling, mental health nursing. So we need a a rethink and I'm I'm hopeful that we're going to get the opportunity to contribute to that. Diagnosing and treating mental health conditions can be complex as you've outlined. Um, So so if if you go to a GP, right, today and say, I'm not feeling great, I, I feel like I need some some help. How are, how is that type of person triaged? So the role of the GP is a really pivotal one, and and one that we you know um, 
you know, pretty well in support of staying as it is because the GP can consider the whole person. Uh, so, the, you know, the GP's role in a um, system sense is to give you a mental health care plan that refers you to uh, a, a psychologist or another specialist for your 10 sessions. But the GP is also playing a role in your physical health and that's a really critical one. It might not always be mental illness. It might be your hormones. Um, and we need to also remember that people with mental health issues have a life expectancy that's 10 to 25 years less than the general population, particularly with more complex and enduring mental illness. So the GP is critical to maintaining that uh, oversight of your physical health as well. Do you have any examples of how much out-of-pocket people can be up for um, in trying to find that extra care? Yeah, look, that's a that's such an important question. I believe that um, the evaluation found that the average co-payment is around $90, but I think for many people, 90 bucks would be um, a windfall if you could find someone that cheap. Often it's hundreds of dollars out of the pocket. And, you know, if you're trying to get in first time to a psychiatrist, people are being quoted $600, $700 for that initial appointment. That's out of reach for families who are on income support. We spoke to a family who have, a, you know, someone in their family that they're trying to support. It's really complex and as a result, all three members of the family need help. So they're paying triple the cost and they estimated that they're spending around 25000 a year, uh, you know, just to get help and it's not good enough. Um, you can imagine the impact that has, particularly with the rising kind of, you know, cost of living and, and other pressures. Mark Butler, the Health Minister, announced $8.5 million to fund two new national peak bodies on mental health, one to represent people experiencing mental health disorders and one for carers and families. How should they work? Look, I think it's really important that they're set up with great structural links to some of the existing uh, efforts that are around the country. So every state and territory has a lived experience network or, or consumer or carer peak body. And what's important about them is they're member-based. So they really hear the grassroots voice of the community. So uh, look, we're really pleased about the announcement. It's been, uh, uh, you know, decades of, of calling for this kind of advocacy. And any other health issue would have a strong consumer voice in the room. So uh, I guess we're just waiting to see the detail. And is this about, if I can be blunt... <laughs> Uh, avoiding just psychologists and professionals making calls for funding, but actually hearing from people who are experiencing it, telling uh, experts what's what's happening for them. Yeah, I think there's no better um, voice on how something should change than, uh, you know, hearing from the people who actually have to navigate the system. They know where the pressure points are. They know what can work. And we absolutely need to make sure that reform is 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 really structural and it makes real change and it shouldn't be driven by any one lobby group. Um, we've got to hear the community voice. I'm interested in children because, you know, as a parent, I hear overwhelmingly concerns from parents trying to navigate a system for their children's mental health issues. Was that raised at this meeting? Uh, look, it, it, it was raised. I think um, there's a lot more we need to do there. We don't do enough to support younger people. There's so many opportunities for early intervention and prevention. And frankly, I think we miss them, uh, particularly when it comes to overlapping uh, disability or neurodiversity and um, emerging complex mental health issues or responses to trauma. Our, our scheme for, for managing that at the later end, the NDIS, can be powerful if you get in. But when it comes to mental health related disability, you're not getting in for decades. And we are really missing a piece of the puzzle there, which would be early comprehensive support for children and their families as soon as it's identified. And that's a huge gap. Just very briefly, what happens next? What action will we see? Uh, I think we're waiting to see. I'm hoping that we get uh, an opportunity to provide um, some thoughtful input following the forum yesterday. 
and really hopeful that we get the chance to comment on on what options are being considered before it gets pushed out as a change. I think also, you know, there's more to do, and we certainly heard that in the room. There are other parts of reform that, that we are hopeful will be considered, like the gap in what we call psychosocial surrounding support services. So, it's a good. It's a really good start. It's great to be back in the room. Uh, there's been um, a real need for that. For sure. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Rachel Green is the CEO of mental health organisation SANE and you're listening to RM Breakfast. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app. Hi, podcasters. Just jumping back in with a special call out for the health report. Dr Norman Swan, who, of course, you know from RN Brekkie and, well, everywhere, hosts the health report with Tegan Taylor. And it's really worth hearing if you want to stay up to date with the latest in health and medical news. Search for it on the ABC Listen app.